this when you talk about black and white extremes, all or nothing, it always makes you wonder. Wow, you're saying there's absolutely no exceptions to that rule, hmm. none. That always makes me wonder, like, how how could you ever literally? How could you ever say that? No, no, no scientist would ever say that. In fact, science does not prove or disprove things in a black and white fashion like that. What's up, yeah. guys? Welcome back to the Think Big Bodybuilding Media channel. You are watching Muscle Minds with Dr. Scott Stevenson. Our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. I have a bottle of J-Flex in my hand. This is the uh, this is my new lifestyle, basically. I'm going to be taking this product for my joints for the rest of my life. We're going to be talking about that more on some of the other programs. But I'm Just commit, uh, Scott. Like, really commit. It's like, seriously. No fluffing around. Yeah. Well, yeah. once you start, I mean, I'm old, and I want to keep lifting the way I want to keep lifting. So... Right. On that note, uh, we're going to talk about lifting the way we both enjoy lifting today. We have a lot more conversation. Uh, we're recording this on Saturday. We're calling it High Intensity Saturday. Uh, <laughs> I'm calling it that. Mm -hmm. I know it doesn't really rhyme, but it does have a ring to it. We're going to talk more about high intensity training today. Um, we Maybe a month ago, we did that episode uh, that we called old school high intensity training techniques. And I thought it would be fun to put it out there. We got some flack, believe it or not. We got some well, flack from the, um, the weeder dogma Nazis. I wouldn't say he was a Nazi. I think he just like, you know, he wanted to express his opinion. It was, I think he was rightfully did so. No, yeah. Did I'm, that, right? I'm exaggerating because I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying right. to, to beef it up, but no. You're he, a shit stir is what you are. Yeah, that's what I was doing. No, no, he was a good dude. Um, I can't remember the name of his channel, but uh, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes though. Cause he does have some cool, uh, some cool videos like of old school training and stuff. But definitely, man, there was, I didn't realize it. All I wanted to do was talk about Mike Benser, talk about high intensity training. But it turns out mm -hmm. that Mike Benser and high intensity training were definitely like villainized by it. There was different camps, man. You had the Weeder camp, you mm -hmm. had Arnold, you had guys doing two a days, 100,000 sets per workout just to grow your triceps. And then you had guys that were doing two sets, you know, one set. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if, listen, I don't know if, one set is the answer, but I do know this, that, you know, maybe there was some flaws with Menser's ideas, but it led to other really awesome ideas. I've seen guys that have done really well with like the predecessors of like, look at DC training. I mean, if it wasn't for Mike Menser, DC training may not have existed, right? I guess maybe, maybe. maybe. I'll have, to, I mean, who's, who's to say exactly like we, we can't, we can't go back in time and determine whether there was a butterfly effect that led to Dante developing DC yeah. training. I tell you what, though, Dante is very, very clear because this comparison was made all the time. People would just summarize DC training and say it was HIT. Oh, okay. Um, which, which, it's, which it's not. No. I mean, Dante was big on you would get some stimulus from the warm-ups because you want to make sure people were properly warmed up. So it wasn't like yeah. you went in and like held all everything back to just like one set all out. Yeah. So, and he was doing Widowmakers. I don't know if those would fit into into Menser. Yeah, no. Uh, but but I, I do kind of equate those. I do see though, yeah, how they could equate them because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, it's it, it's hard to really compare it to anything else, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're just like trying to put it in boxes, right. I think you could just look at it, look along a spectrum. Okay. You know, and in the one, in the one of the spectrum is Arnold, what Arnold was doing. And in Arnold's day, those guys were, Arnold was, from what I understand, from the lore, yeah. and I wasn't there, but he was, they were coming completely off all the PEDs during an off season, not even training necessarily. There's a video, Arnold was doing like a commercial for like some vacation spot. It may have been in Brazil. Yeah. Where he's with a couple young young ladies and and he's totally scaled down and this was like in between Olympias yeah. so he'd do kind of a Lebroni type of thing yeah basically yeah. I, I saw pictures of him roofing where he was like a buck ninety or something you know not a huge deal yeah yeah so he would just they come off and then then they go back in the gym and then they just go full bore which is what a lot of the guys in the Middle East do as well those guys will go go completely clean and then when they go on they just load up like yeah. big time. And that so the recovery goes from, um, you know, maybe even subpar par if they're hypogonadal, they didn't do a PCT to they they they're fully loaded so they can handle all that volume. Yeah. And they just start training with high volume, but those sets are not really taken a failure all that often, at least. Yeah. It's it's hard to always know because um, you don't see videos where they're they're following an entire training regime. It's just you see pictures and videos of during the hard sets when they're going after it. Those are the ones that get in the, the motivational videos of the clips. Right, they're right. They're not showing all the sets, you know. Yeah. It's like Instagram. Yeah. Like not every set for most people. I mean, I mean, for the way I do the way I do fortitude training, you know, all the muscle rounds and all the loading sets, the last one at least. Yeah. And the pump sets are all brutal like that. But the warm-up sets aren't. But with the volume training, you know, a lot of those guys were doing what they considered working sets that had "quote unquote" effective reps mm-hmm. that weren't like crazy. So that's like one end of the spectrum. Do use the volume to create the stimulus, mm-hmm. and at the other end was Mike Menser, where and this is where we can add in the correction. What I remember from because I've been around just for a, a hot minute is that on the discussion board, <laughs> the people were bantering that near the end of Menser's life. Mm-hmm. Um, when he was still working with people, but he was, you know, not maybe sort of a, a shadow of his former self, definitely physique wise. I don't think he had trained for a while, wasn't taking great care of himself from what I understand. Um, and he had also tried to extend his notions of very infrequent training to where he was doing having people train like once a month. That's what I remember. Okay. So we dug around just online here just before us try to find some. There was a mention of that in an article on bodybuilding.com where people would do that kind of thing, training that infrequently. Okay. But what, I don't think that was like a standard, like published during the, the prime of his popularity. Yeah. HIT training standard. Yeah. But I heard that he was doing that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, with people and, and some of it, I mean, the thing that I recall too, and I'm not trying to speak poorly of Mansra, but he was, don't you don't um, Scott, you watch it, I know. watch it. <laughs> that like, the, like those last well say it this way his last couple of years were not representative of him during his prime when he was really yeah you know uh, promulgating his philosophies yeah and that he was like you know trying to make some money training people and had to kind of stand out in some way and um, you know the training with even less frequency it might work for some people this is the main criticism that was levied against HIT training is that you take people who are doing too much as we talked about the last podcast yeah and they were just they're blasting there. Maybe they're overreaching. Maybe they're, they're functionally overreaching is what it would be described as meaning they're, they're no longer making progress. They haven't started overtrain where they're, where they're losing performance or losing muscle mass. 
But if they slow things down and deload or stop training, it's quote-unquote functional because the rebound, the adaptation that happens after, after ceasing to do that, that excessive training regime is one that leads to gains. Yeah. So, so that is what people were saying. Well, yeah, you come off of trying to do 20 sets and doing way too much and your sleep's messed up and you're, you know, you're literally, you know, barely hanging in there and you rest yeah. and you start eating. Well, yeah, you're going to just, you're going to rebound like a motherfucker. That's not because, you know, training once every 10 days, this is a criticism that would be levied, right. is the best way to go about, but you make good gains because the adaptation is set up based on what was done previously. Right, right. Which is always the case. Like you, you the adaptation, adaptation comes after the stimulus was applied. Mm. So the real stimulus for that growth wasn't the once every ten or twelve days mm-hmm. or menstrual training per se. The stimulation, the adaptation was set up by the training that happened before that, yeah. and then you sort of edged it along with a prolonged taper. Mm. So. That's what people would say. So it's, but I think it's somewhere in between. I think you're right. right? I don't think that the, yeah, I don't necessarily think it's going to ever be black and white that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's the thing too. I think that the minute you say, Hey, we're going to talk about hit training, high intensity training. All of a sudden I feel like people who are anti hit can come out of the woodwork because we did have the one guy, but there's been other people who have just said like, Oh, that's garbage. But it's like, but wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Is it really? Just like, just like I wouldn't say that that um, that the weeder principles are garbage. You know what I mean? Like, there's some really good stuff in there, and I think that there is some really good things to be learned from volume. You know, but it, you know, it, I think that along the way, there's got to be some sort of middle ground, and I think that it's important to be able to understand both extremes, really. Well, here, here's the thing: like, we know Brandon Curry. From having with the interview we had with them, they just train like crazy. They've got everything set up recovery wise. They're basically eating, sleeping, getting massages, getting take. There's no messing everything around. They can there's do. no excessive energy. And the training is just outrageous what they do. And he even said, and this is a really important thing that I, I, I try to keep in my memory is that when new guys would come in to uh, to train there, and some of them would make it, and some of them wouldn't. It was the ones literally they. They set up that training regime so that only the strong would survive. Yeah, yeah. Only only those who, who could adapt to that training stimulus and wouldn't end up backsliding were the ones who stuck around. Yeah. And if you could adapt to that training stimulus, and this relates back to our, just our last podcast, that meant you had the recovery abilities to do that. Yeah. If you can apply that much stimulus and recover, then you've got a much stronger stimulus creating a much greater adaptation. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. But if it's too much stimulus for you and you can't recover from it, then that's not a good adaptation. Right. So, but then we got Dorian Yates. He was a pretty good bodybuilder. He's right? all right. Yeah, he did all right for yeah, himself. Not bad. He managed to. And the the better and bigger he got, the less he had to train because he learned mm. how to train even harder and harder. And each of the weights were were higher. Yeah. The the stimulus, the inroads, and recovery to use kind of a Mentorian term, were greater. So he his like his. You can imagine if like Dorian had started doing what Brandon's doing, training wise. It probably wouldn't have been in, good for him. No, I don't. I'm almost certain it wouldn't have. He was very meticulous yeah. in what he figured out and how he trained. Yeah. And we go back just like I don't know three or four podcasts where we talked about the study where they had uh, each each workout was uh, for just the knee extensions, extensors, the quads, uh, three sets of knee extensions, and they compared five 
versus two and three times a week. Mm-hmm. So it was a variation in volume and frequency, but the, the volume was a varying frequency. But here we're just talking about volume now. The sets were carried out in the same way in terms of failure goes in each of those workouts. And on average, no difference in growth. Yeah. didn't make a difference on average. But when they, when they dissected and looked at the individuals and they trained one leg one way and one leg the other way, they just put the compacted the two or three times a week, so the, the uh, six and nine sets versus 15 sets. And some people grew better with the 15 sets. Some people grew better with the six or nine sets. Mm-hmm. Some, for some people, it was the opposite. Some people grew really well no matter what they did. Yeah. And other people didn't grow very well either way. Yeah. So, yeah, there's going to be people for whom an HIT approach rocks. It's perfect. They have the mentality for that. They'll adapt to that because it, it suits their recovery abilities. That's what all those little things we were talking about last time with, with the, uh, the genetic polymorphisms that are involved with recovery and muscle recovery in particular. And they like to train that way, so they keep doing that. Other people like to get the pump. They do better from the volume. They can handle that. They've got recovery resources that will allow that. So they do better there. Yeah. So, obviously, you got Arnold, pretty good. You got Brandon, pretty good. You got Dorian, pretty good. That's a that's a pretty wide stretch. Yeah, yeah, it would you be. Got, you got fucking fucking um, Ronnie, you know, who trained like high volume and everything twice a week. Yeah, yeah. Like his re- his recovery resources were just incredible, and he's still and he's still lifting those gino- ginormous loads. Right. You know. 800 pound deadlifts and all that kind of crazy shit. So, you know, he's, he's, he's doing sets of 12, like with five plates on a bent over row. Yeah. You know, 200 pound dumbbell presses. Right. For sets of 12. So he's, I, he's training that frequently, like that hard. Like, so he, that's just, uh, he, he there are guys who could do those lifts, but they couldn't recover from that the way Ronnie could. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. You're gonna okay. Yeah, well, I had, I had some questions. So I, you know, I, I'm still doing research, still like dicking around and reading, uh, you know, and listening to stuff about HIT and getting perspectives. And I recently watched a video that uh, that was basically like t- titled uh, like Mike Menser is a HIT style training. So I checked it out and it turned out to be pretty anti-hit is what it was. I was like, oh, I'm going to mm-hmm. watch something and this would be interesting. And the guys just pretty much bashed Mike Menser and Arthur Jones. And, you know, they called uh, they called Arthur Jones. They said he looked like um, he looked like Lee Harvey Oswald. He smoked cigarettes. He was paranoid and he carried a gun. And that was like basically his contributions to the world. I don't know. Anyway, though, okay. but one thing that was said, and I wanted to run this by you. I thought this would be a, almost a question of sorts. It was said that it is, it is impossible to trade intensity for volume. That uh, you can't go, that it, going max effort, it's been proven that going max effort uh, will not compensate for more sets. So you could do more sets with sub max effort and get just as good of effect, if not better than, than going all out for less sets. That's impossible. Black and white extremes, all or nothing. It always makes you wonder, wow, you're saying there's absolutely no exceptions to that rule. Hmm. None. That always makes me wonder, like, how how could you ever, literally, how could you ever say that? No, no, no scientist would ever say that. In fact, 
science does not prove or disprove things in a black and white fashion like that. Hmm. Because what you get, science is, uses what's called inferential statistics. So we'll just talk about the, the sort of philosophy of science a little bit. Okay. Because I have a doctorate in philosophy. <laughs> a PhD is a doctorate of philosophy. But the idea there is that you use the statistics to infer from a sample what you would expect to find in that population in general on average. So, for example, when they did the, the study that with the five times a week versus three and two times a week, they found when they ran the statistics, on average, no difference in gains and muscle size with those different training regimes. Right. Okay. So you, if you looked at that study, you'd say, "What's well, it would? It, there's no difference." It's the same. If you, if you weren't being, they're the, they were the same. They, they statistically, there was no difference. And mathematically, there's always going to be a difference. Like a hundred versus a hundred point one is a difference. Yeah. You know, but statistically speaking, if you, if your sample averages were that, you would, there's, you're, unless you sample like a billion people, you're not going to find a difference there. So, but we know when they looked at the individual data, that it certainly was possible for there to be a difference. That's why that is so valuable. Okay. So when anyone claims that something is impossible, um, that is just like, it's, it's like e physics is the most hard science there is. And physics itself boils down to probability to some degree. If you look at it from a quantum mechanics standpoint, you know, and and physicists, I don't think a physicist would ever say anything. Anything is impossible, at least a good one. Okay. And certainly other scientists would not. So that's just like that's just kind of ludicrous. That's just that's just it's a nonsensical statement to say something's absolutely impossible. Okay. Because so I look, I didn't know how to respond to that. We can look at that. I'm not a science guy, right? I didn't know right. how to respond to that, but I did. Right. I did feel like something about this doesn't sound right, so I wanted to ask you. Yeah. So then, then we know, we look at Dorian Yates and what we just said. Now, Dorian never, there was no oxygen gym. Maybe there was, but there was an, ox, an oxygen gym as it is now right. available. And Dorian wouldn't have left the UK, I don't think, anyway to train. No. But he certainly has managed to build a pretty impressive physique. Many people might say that his physique would have beaten Brandon's last year at the Olympia stage at his best. It'd be cool to see him up against each other, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, well, absolutely for sure. But so Dorian managed to train to failure with a greatly reduced volume compared to what Brandon does, and it seems like he made up for it. But that would be impossible, right? Mm -hmm. And if you say when you that statement also is totally ignoring the volume. So are we talking about one set to failure? Or three sets to failure, or five sets to failure. Hmm. So, for you take you take any individual, and let's say you, you you make their frequency twice a week. Yeah. For every muscle group, basically, just kind of keep it simple. There's going to be a dose response: one, two, three, four, five, six sets to failure. Eventually, over the course of the week, eventually, they're, you're going to get to some point where your adaptation is optimal, and then if you keep on adding sets. You're going to start overreaching, and eventually you start overtraining, and you start losing performance. So, if you just lump all of those scenarios together as failure training, as that statement generically does, 
it misses the, the, the point that there's going to be some peak adaptation on training to failure. Hmm. What that statement is suggesting is that if you then look at someone who's training with volume and not going to failure, leaving who knows how many reps in the tank, and you compared one, two, three, four, five, X number, let's maybe you could go to 20 sets and still recover that doing 20 and that's and that for that dose response it goes up and up and up and up and up and it peaks at 20 per week so two two sets of 10 which falls in line with a lot of the research looking at volume training um, but but which is mainly based on untrained individuals so that doesn't really apply to most of the people who are listening and trying to glean mm. um information useful information from us which makes sense then you know i mean yeah yeah so let's take those two optimals and you know what too I, I don't I don't want to hang you up too much here, but if I think about it, you know, like I'm you know I'm doing personal training here out in my gym, and one of the guys I'm working with is pretty much brand new to training. His ability to go to failure is a lot different than my ability to go to Absolutely. failure. You know, and and I can see for him if he's going from not training at all to doing three sets on the leg press over here, that's going to be a lot more of a stimulus than you know. It's going to be a different story, I guess, yeah. completely. Been been saying that 100%. That's why you get a great training effect from, from untrained individuals. They just have to do something. It's so much more than what they've been doing. Yeah. The increment in stimulus from zero to, you know, three sets Yeah. Um, per workout is gigantic. Yeah. But let's just keep all those things the same and let's say what what that would basically be saying for a given individual. For, for, let's just take one individual that – if you did, if you compared, look, if you could have come up with a dose response from one to whatever, 10 sets of failure training and the, and the six sets of failure training per week was the, the best adaptation. Yeah. And then you can, and then the same individual, let's say they've got a twin or you've got two sets of twins and Id- identical twins and you run them through everything else being the same, you've got them at the bodybuilding ranch or so their diet and recovery, everything's exactly identical as best you can do it. And maybe for them, it's it's uh, twenty sets hmm. a week. Okay. Or let me let me say it's sixteen, something like that. So two two times eight. So that would be kind of up at the up at the up at the upper end of the range that you see with the research generally, something like that. But there's also, you know, Brad studies, which was suggesting that forty five sets a week could be better in some cases. Yeah, which is just crazy. So. Anyway, let's take it. Take for those that for that individual, six sets to failure is the best you can get from failure training, and sixteen sets to failure is the best you can get from non-failure training. So, okay, so what what kind of non-failure training are we doing? Are we going to zero reps in reserve and not training to where you actually have a failure point, hmm. or are we leaving five reps in the tank? Hmm. If you're leaving five reps in the tank. You get some gains probably for the first, you know, six months, something like that. Sure, because you've done nothing. Yeah, you've done nothing, so it's just definitely something. Yeah. And then eventually, like, what happens? Like, you're still training not very hard. you still got five reps in the tank. You're going to gain some strength. It's going to be pretty, pretty paltry. Yeah. So you're going to – so 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 statement again, because it's non-qualified, doesn't say how many reps are in the reps in reserve. It just says more volume. So let's well, let's just take it to extreme. What if you just like left, you know, those were sets of 12 and you just started doing sets of six. Okay. Just, you know, and just adding them up, you know? Yeah. Do you think you could ever get growth from doing sets of six with 12 rep max loads that would be, that would 
like if you just did that, like when would that peter out? Pretty rapidly. Yeah, yeah. You might get something at first. So that, that so it's just saying that volume will always be better than training to failure mm. is nonsensical because it doesn't qualify the reps in reserve. Okay. Then the effort level. Yeah. So you're going to have a whole spectrum there. So that so you so so that doesn't make when you say impossible you can see how like ludicrous this is because you said something's impossible like what if you just did triples, you know. With 12 rep max, it's like those, all those reps would be really, really easy. Yeah. And you did 60 sets of them or something like something ludicrous like that. Right. So, so it makes no sense. Plus, we know from the study that with the Damas study we've talked about now, I'd mentioned earlier, we did the whole podcast on essentially, is that some people do better from higher volume than lower volume and vice versa. Mm, yeah. Those were those were to failure. So you put those people on like that that. Let's go to, to failure training, and some people have the they do the best with six sets. Well, some people are going to be better with fifteen sets. Yeah. Some people are going to grow more than others with more sets versus less sets. Yeah. That's true with, and that's a failure training study. They took those sets to failure. Um, I would presume, although I can't think of anything offhand, that if you train with reps in reserve, um, you're going to see. You, you probably would see the same sort of phenomenon. Hmm. Okay. I don't have any reason to wonder why. Yeah. In fact, that study that we talked about with with regards to sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, where they took just the responders, on average, that that regime was a very high volume one hmm. that I believe used reps in reserve, and ha- on average, no one grew. On average, the average was no growth. Essentially, it did not produce muscle growth, but half of the subjects roughly did hmm. grow from that, and half of them didn't. Remember, we had the one guy who like lost a massive amount of size. He looked like he lost like over two thousand square microns on in fiber cross sectional area. Over yeah, the yeah. He got fucking buried. Yeah. And then somebody else like gained like a twelve hundred or something like that. I can't remember the numbers exactly, but there was a gigantic diversity. Yeah. So, um. That was a high volume training. Hmm. So I, I I think you know that guy did. There's plenty of volume there, right? I, what what if you were to drop back and just do like you know four sets to failure? Hmm. I bet we could get some growth out of him some way, shape, or form. Maybe he was a non-responder and he just obliterated himself. Yeah. So the bottom line there is that there's going to be a dose response for failure training. There's going to be a dose response at any level of effort hmm. for different individuals. So you might be able to do sixteen sets leaving three reps in the tank and get the same growth as six sets, mm. um, leaving no reps in the tank, going to actual failure, yeah. which people don't often do. Like, how many times have you seen someone do that on a back squat? No, it's hard. Really to failure. Yeah, that's that's hard. You're gonna. That means that you have to basically go down in the hole and, like, I rarely ever... You're gonna need the safety. You don't come out of the hole? Yeah. Or you try to come up and you fail and you're in your squat spotter has to bring you back up they do make those safety bars for a reason but you rarely see people using them them. do you i always them. yeah like i don't like because when i do muscle rounds i typically do muscle rounds Mm. on when i'm squatting on a smith machine okay so i can just go down stops yeah because you you don't want to do it with a a barbell because you have to walk back and forth yeah that uses up energy unnecessarily it's kind of unsafe when you're pushing it but i'll take those to failure there's a video i think somewhere of me on instagram okay doing that 
So I knew those failure. They're fucking brutal. Yeah. But people don't typically even do that in the gym most of the time. But anyway, there's going to be a dose response for for three reps in the tank, hmm, and it's yeah. going to differ from one with no reps in the tank, and it's going to differ for training to actual failure. Okay. But if we just say all volumes the same, regardless of the reps in reserve, like you said, you do six six rep sets with twelve rep max loads. Eventually, that's going to be a non-stimulus, yeah. no matter how many of them you do. Yeah. It's not going to fucking matter because it's it's just too easy. And there's a study. This is one of the I cite this study in um, uh, the Fortitude Training book. While you're looking for that, I'll I, tell everybody that guys, uh, we have a few questions coming in. We will tackle your questions toward the end of the show, so hang in there. Uh, otherwise, mm-hmm. just, uh, if you want to come back, we'll have this out on YouTube uh, shortly, a little while. So in this uh, in this study, they had they had a control group, and then they had two regimes. Um, okay. They were doing. Uh, um, what they called a no rest regimen where they did three to five sets, 10 repetitions to 10 rep max for lat pull down, shoulder press and knee, knee extension. So that's just kind of how they mix it up. And this was published in 2005 go to like go to G O T O, but I think it's Goto in in my bastardized Japanese. Okay. Uh, this is there from Ibaraki, Japan is where the Institute of health sciences. So, and then they, so that was just basically, you know, 10 reps, the 10 rep max. And then in the other, in the, uh, the regimen with rest within a period, within a set, they would, uh, a rest, I believe it was a 30 seconds at the midpoint of each set of exercises. Hmm. And they were looking at reducing metabolic stress. So the volume was the same. Mm-hmm. They were going to failure in the, in the normal regime. And the other one, they took a 30 second rest. So you do a set of five and then rest 30 seconds and do a set of five. So you're never hitting failure. Mm. Same load, same volume, but just not hitting failure. Um, so let's see. And I'll pull up. I can actually even send you this picture. We can throw it up here. All right. Uh, I'll just read from the abstract for right now. Um, 12 weeks resistance training, the, the no rest regimen. Greater increases in one rep max, isometric strength, muscle endurance, and knee, with knee extension than the with rest regimen. Hmm. The no rest group showed a marked increase in muscle cross-sectional area, where the, whereas the within set rest group and, and control groups did not. There was no growth. So their volume was the same, but they got no growth. Okay. Maybe, maybe they could have doubled that and maybe got some growth. But in that case... Like the volume was exactly the same, but they took failure was was better mm. because those were so easy. St- taking thirty seconds in between, someone could go in the gym and try this. Like pick up your ten rep max yeah. and do a set of five, where it's maybe you're just starting to feel it a little bit. You're only halfway through the set, and then just put it down, rest for thirty seconds, and then do another set of five. Yeah, that's going to be easy. You're never going to really probably tap into. Um, at least some pot, well, you probably with that load, but you're never going to fully tax and fully activate huh. the, uh, the high threshold motor units. Huh. Okay. They might be activated, but they're not going to be activated at a frequency that produces a maximal force. Yeah. Yeah. So, because it's never that effortful, you're never getting even close to failure with those. Right. So that's the kind of the most direct study. I know there's some other ones that are sort of similar, but they didn't get any growth. The volume was the same. So 
It doesn't exactly show more volume. There's some other studies. We just came up with this topic this morning on the fly. So there are some other studies that have kind of, we could, we could pull the same information from, but I just haven't had a chance to look them up. Okay. So, Hey, what's up, guys? Scott here. I'm going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll get right back to the programming. If you're listening to this on iTunes, do us a favor. Leave us a good five-star review. That'll help other people to find our shows. Thank you for that. All right, so I'm going to shout out the joint supplements that they have available over at truenutrition.com today. And uh, listen, if you guys didn't know, I mean, most of you probably do, I had a partial tear in my shoulder recently, and it was quite a scare because I thought I wasn't going to be able to continue lifting the way that I enjoy lifting. I don't want that to end. And thankfully, I'm not going to need surgery, but I am going to need to take care of my joints. And this was a wake-up call for me. So I talked to Dante Trudell. It turns out there's only two supplements that will actually rebuild connective tissue. So the first one is hydrolyzed beef collagen, and they offer this through True Nutrition. It's not cheap. We're talking like $25.99 a pound. But listen, each scoop, you get 29 grams of high-quality, high-digesting protein, Plus, you're rebuilding your connective tissue. So you're using this as a supplement and you're using this as food so you can replace some of the protein powder you would have been drinking to offset the cost. I got the unflavored version and basically there's no taste to this stuff. There's maybe a tiny, tiny aftertaste, but there's basically no taste. And what you can do is you could just mix in some crystal light or mix it with you know an intra workout that you're using. You could use it at any point of the day. I've been mostly using it either as an intra workout or I've been mixing it with my pre-workout. I had a little bit of crystal light and I am good to go. The second supplement that I'm using is a product called JFlex from True Nutrition. And the most important part of this is a supplement called UC2. That's undenatured type two cartilage. So with the beef collagen, you get type one and type three. This provides type two. So these things combined will give you the best chance of restoring connective tissue and keeping your connective tissue strong. Along with that, it also contains glucosamine, chondroitin, MSM, SAMe, you know, things that you would expect to find in a regular joint product. And you get boswala extract and curcumin, both of which are great for inflammation. So if you want to take care of your joints, check this stuff out. And you can use our code ADVICES. That'll get you a little bit of additional savings. And of course, that goes directly to help support our programming. I want to keep lifting the way I want to lift as long as possible. Can I ask you, so people cite the Brad Schoenfeld, was it meta-analysis, about training to failure, saying that that proved that you don't need to train to failure. Can you (laughs) address that? Because it's it's been proven. There's been a study. And I feel like... If you're me, I like I don't know what to say to that, okay? You know, I'm not a I'm not a big study guy, as you know. I, I'm interested in learning, but then, you know, I, I hear stuff and I kind of take it with a grain of salt. And I say though that like that just doesn't seem right to me, but I, I, I can't refute it. I'm being told there's proof. Yeah, well there there's proving and like there's you, you never can you can provide evidence for something but proving something just and i this is actually i talk about this in my um in my book yeah is not is not something you can do in you could do that in physics you could for instance prove the existence of of some particular particle because once you find it once that means it exists or existed and you have the proof there for it okay but 
like it's like look at those two studies you would say if you looked at the first study that said there's no difference in those two regimes five versus two versus three sets per week and said well that proved it there's no difference a proof suggests it's 100 percent for everybody all the time and okay. it's not the case because they very very cleverly and insightfully knew this they're looking at their data you know just in in tabulating it all and running the statistics you see the spreads you see the differences you know, they probably just having their data in a spreadsheet with left and right legs for all their subjects, mm-hmm. not knowing, you know, which particular uh, condition they were in. Mm. They just had left and right. They're like, keep on seeing these differences. It's like, okay, well, if if there really were no no systematic difference and there wasn't sort of a systematic difference, there was an individual difference, then you'd, most of the numbers would be pretty damn close. Mm. Everyone would be getting the same kind of growth from two versus five or three versus five times a week. But they weren't seeing that. They're seeing like some of those. We pointed them out in the. Maybe we can link this in the show notes. We pointed those out in that podcast. That there's this like ginormous difference for some people. Yeah, yeah. Like two or threefold greater growth in one condition versus the other, and it wasn't systematic. It wasn't like always that five times was better than three and two. Sometimes it was the opposite. Okay. So, so you're not proving anything. So that's the the lay media says that, and like studies. Proves science proves. I have this really annoying ad that pops up. It's one of the I get the ad for this particular soap and this other guy who's just kind of a knucklehead selling. I don't know what he sells. Foods, foods increase your testosterone levels and some other things. And he says studies prove. Yeah, yeah. You hear that all the time. I know you do, but it's it's not something you will hear uh, a well educated, well trained scientist say. Mm. It just won't. So if you hear somebody say that. There should be some alarms it, going off. Yeah, it's a little bit of a red flag. It's like, you know, because um, you're not, you're doing proofs in mathematics. You can prove something maybe in a court of law through the evidence. You'd use that terminology. And maybe in science, you may say, we prove the, we prove the existence of this, of this particle or something like that. And, you know, in, in physics, but you're not going to do that in, um, uh, you're not going to do that in exercise science when you're using inferential statistics. Okay trying to find this um meta-analysis here all right so so basically that but that's an untrained individuals so um that doesn't necessarily apply that's an external validity type of thing we know that things that work for untrained people won't work for trained people anymore you can't train the way you were when you were untrained and it's still like if you still keep you know five reps in the tank okay um which and this is Eric Helms' work has shown this is like you people think they're training to failure or they're they'll try to estimate how many reps they have left. Yeah. And then so you say, What do you you know, tell us when you think you got, you know, two or three reps left and they'll stop or they'll 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 nod and they'll say, Okay, we'll keep and they'll push them to failure and they'll get ten or twelve reps. So in this conclusion gigantic discrepancy. It's saying furthermore, it seems unnecessary to perform failure training to maximize muscular strength. Um, however, if incorporated into a programming training to failure should be performed sparingly to limit risks of injury and overtraining. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'm pointing to non-failure being better, but, but that, that just throws everything all together. Okay. Um, training, training was controlled. Volume was controlled in, in some, but not others. Okay. So we have that interaction, like we talked, like the hypothetical, you know, six sets to true failure yeah. versus, you know, how many sets leaving two or three reps in the tank. 
going to zero reps in reserve where your next rep is going to be a failure rep. You're certain of that. This is how Jordan trains yeah. for the most part. You don't see him actually doing failure failure points, unless, ideally, because that, that's where you can get injury. Hmm. Truly, that's that's the most that's the could be the toughest part if you don't have things set it up, especially if you're like you know not in a squat rack with the safeties there, for instance. But there's going to be a different growth. There's a different stimulus to failure to zero reps in reserve, two reps in reserve, five reps in reserve. Eventually, you're going to get no effective stimulus. Okay. And and I've talked about this before here in some other podcasts is that as you as you get more trained, you're going to be able to learn how to train harder. And if you're still pushing things, so your failure point, as you said, is different than the failure point of the client you mentioned before. Yeah. If, you know, you looked at him like, you know, two or three years from now. It'll be different for um, sure. It'd be very different. He will take those sets much further. Hey, he's able to take those sets. He's able to take them further now than he was a month ago. You know, he's brand new. Always, yeah, it's always going to be changing. Mm. And over the years, you'll get even better and better at that. Yeah. And the loads will go up. Yes. Too. So it's not as if you're still using 100 pounds five years into it. Now you're maybe at 300 pounds. And you got there in part because you've continued to train harder and harder and harder. So at some point down the road, and this is kind of a a key thing that I think what what we mentioned, Brad, uh, we were talking about this before, before, and Brad Schoenfeld on the Brains and Gains podcast Okay, um, was asked the question, what something along the lines of what is a finding in the research literature that doesn't really jive with your sense of how things play out in the real world. Mm, yeah. And the thing that came to mind for Brad is that he thinks that there's more utility and value in training to failure, especially for advanced trainees oh. than what the research has demonstrated. Okay. And huh. so to, to that point, and I agree with him and he's, he talked about people like John Meadows and other advanced trainees it's not that you need to take every set to failure. So there's multiple ways to do this. You can combine non-failure with failure training. Yeah. Um, you can do warm-up sets that are somewhat effective as you're moving your way up, or you cannot do that. But eventually, you're going to have to push harder and harder and harder, which is what happens. It goes along with progressive overload as you get stronger to where, let's say, you get to heavy, heavy loads. And what what creates an effective overload stimulus, what creates a stimulus for adaptation is going to be only those sets and only those efforts in combination with the right amount of volume that are, are basically to failure are very close to it. Hmm, okay. You're not going to, you're going to, cause, cause you're, here's the way to look at it right now for your trainee, he's starting out and let's say if you could hypnotize him and tell, tell him like, you know, your life's on the line, your family's going to be killed. You know, your world will be over unless you get 20 reps here. And mm-hmm. he that's, 20 reps would be his true max. Yeah. But right now he only gets 12. Yeah. So he's got a lot more room in there. and But he's still growing from that. Mm-hmm. Right? Those 12s are still great. He's still growing like a weed because he's just starting off. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, well, as you get more and more advanced, the stimulus has to be up because you're, you're getting to a, a – the law of diminishing returns is, is starting to take effect. So those sets that would be true 20 rep sets can't be just taken to 12 reps and mm-hmm. expect to have a stimulus. You got to take them to 15. You know, you may not have to train to where you're bleeding out of every orifice. Yeah. Um, when you get to be intermediate, you know, three years in, but when you want to get every little inch 
every little ounce of extra muscle, then you're going to have to take those closer and closer to a true failure point and have to train like you're insane in order to create anything that remotely that, that resembles or is a stimulus in those sets. So your effective reps in this case, when he starts off, he's got, you know, eight reps in the tank. Mm-hmm. If you could actually measure that and get that, this is the hard thing is you can't really measure those things in a lab very well. Hmm. Because you have to create, like those circumstances are not something that you can really generate very well in a lab. Hmm. But it okay. does vary a lot depending on labs. Some labs, if you're just standing there with your your um your clipboard, and you say keep going, keep going. You got a few more left. Okay, good, thanks. Let's write it down. Like, there's no motivation there. Yeah. You get some labs, and you're screaming at people. Really? Going bonkers. Oh yeah, like that's how it's that's how it should be done. Is that what you just did? Like in the gym, and yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Depending on the on the person, like yeah. it had to be standard. Like we've got if we had big studies, and I couldn't be there with all the measurements then I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. We'd have to kind of standardize that, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. You know, imagine, um, you know, when do guys like, here's just like on the, there may have, this may have been studied to some degree, but I'm like guys see a hot chick coming by in the gym and they're kind of there for picking up. That's one of their, at least, you know, second or third, if not their primary motivation for being in the gym. (laughs) Yeah. They're going to train. They're trying to try to show off. Right. Yeah. They don't know the women don't really care about that, but yeah. No, but there's still, they, was, for some reason, we're disillusioned to think that, you know, our alpha male brains, you right. know, just, we're still stuck in the jungle thinking, you know, we need, the harder we beat our chest, the more likely we are to, to procreate. Yeah. So you do that, it motivates you. So different things will motivate you in different ways, just like huh. you know this, because it happens in the real world. You get with the right training partner, like oh. I've said this before, I want to find a training partner who will make me his bitch, yeah. who just goes so friggin' hard, or so friggin' strong. That I'm motivated just to try to keep up in a way I wouldn't otherwise be. Yeah, yeah. But you, but you, some people will be are demotivating almost. You're like, God, I wish this person were even here. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll or, never be as strong as Dave with, Henry. You know, <laughs> I could see uh, someone mightn't feel that way. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, well, Dave and I, Dave and I were great for one another because we were very, very close in strength. Okay. Yeah. Like I would beat him on legs a little bit, and he would always beat me on chest, and that was a weak muscle group for me, which made sense. Yeah. So I always was was trying to catch him there. Back were pretty close. You know, we were like, we're always neck and neck. So you know, I beat Dave. It was like a big thing on something that I normally beat him on. So that was really good because it was actually true. We were at this kind of the same competitive level strength-wise. So Zeke-wise, obviously not. Nowhere even near. Yeah. But strength-wise, I, very, very close. Yeah. I could see, though, that if you were with someone that, say, looked better than you, then you could, yeah, for somebody it may be motivating. For somebody else it may be demotivating. I could get that. Yeah. Just like for to scream at someone and tell them, like, get more and more rep. They might get motivated by that. Someone else might get scared. Be like, I don't like mm-hmm. that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, yeah. Uh, ben Chow has been talking about that a bit on the Fuads podcast. Yeah. Where like, he even did a photo shoot. I think he was at Redcon. He did a photo shoot, and uh, I think the photographer, someone there, was trying to get him pumped up for a big squat. Mm-hmm. And that's not how he gets fired up for those. It's yeah. too far along his arousal um, U curve. So there's an optimal arousal. You go too far, and like performance goes down. He has to have his mind straight and have a certain level of calm yeah. so that he can execute the squat the way he wants to. Okay. So yeah. that doesn't work for him. Screaming and yelling like just throws him off his game. That's what the way Shelby so, was. Shelby didn't want you to talk during a set. He didn't want you to put your right. hands by the bar or anything. Nothing. You just, you just yeah. stay there. I don't there, want that either. You know, yeah. he just, he doesn't want any sound or anything. You know, he just, he wanted to be able to focus on what he was doing. So yeah, mm-hmm. everybody's different. 
Yeah. So, but to go back to the lab now where you're yeah. having people do failure training, even if they're untrained people. Um, and you're not going to be able to like get those people to go and do what they, they probably could do. Okay. Um, because we, and we know this, we know this simply because, um, there's some lear- like there, there's a learning curve that happens just with practice Yeah. where the neurological gains far out and the strength gains far outpace the muscle mass gains. So that's not a structural thing in the nervous system. That's a learning, learning uh, effect. And some of that's probably just purely sort of psychological as, a, as opposed to just skill acquisition. Okay. Just getting used to like being comfortable doing things and putting it all together, even from a, a cognitive standpoint. Plus, um, as you know, as uh, Eric found in that in the research that he did, like if you actually push, he said go so go to failure, and if you don't give them any encouragement, their failure might be twelve reps. But if you actually push them, their failure could be twenty reps. Mm. If there's a, it was a huge gap for some people. Not everyone had buried. Yeah, and that varies as a function of training experience too. Yeah. More trained you are, the harder you can push. The, the the better you are at, and this has been demonstrated, the better you are at actually assessing the loads that you're going to use for a given number of reps when training to failure. Hmm. And like when I do muscle rounds, I can literally like, I almost, I don't, I can't remember the last time I didn't work for me. I, I'm in a new gym doing a new exercise and I, you know, maybe I've never even used the machine, which I try to seek out actually stuff I haven't used before. And hmm. I just load the weight up and I know right, right where I'm going to be to get a muscle round. Hmm. Um, we're all fail at the appropriate time and almost never over go too high or go too low. Mm, okay. It like, almost never happens. I just feel like, how do I figure it out? You know, and eventually you'll just know you can, you can tell cause you know how, you know how much the load, how heavy it feels on the warm up sets. Yeah. So you can't get a good act as much of an accurate, um, I don't think failure point or, uh, reps to failure with, um, untrained people. In fact, you, like, the testing itself will, will, will create a different failure point. They've, some of these studies mm-hmm. they've done where they, they just repeatedly test. They try to get stability. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to get in some cases because yeah. you go in like, let's get a one rep max just with a one rep max. Yeah. And it's like, it's a hundred pounds. Like, okay, we'll come back two days later and, and they get 105 pounds. Like, okay, well they come back a third time and they get 115 pounds. It's like, well, you're pra- you're getting a practice effect that keeps on changing, like without any training, just from repeatedly testing. Hmm. So, you're gonna you're you're not gonna be training with nearly intensity when you're untrained like that okay. um, with nearly effort relative to what you're actually capable of. Whereas when you get highly trained, you're much more able to do that. Okay. So reps and reserve differs depending on training status dramatically depending yeah. on the person. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, I've heard John yeah. talk about that a lot too, and talk about you know like well how many reps and reserve did you really have? I think my definition, you know how close am I to failure is probably a lot different than, you know, once again, my client who's, you know, been training for a month now. And as an aside, I'll, I'll throw this out too. One of the things that I do in, in for reasons I've talked about, but in fortitude training, I have people do the reps continuously. Okay. So you don't pause between reps unless you need to, to re, you know, reorient your stance or something like that to, you know, to situate yourself properly. So you can do things safely or the right way. Yeah. But you do them continuously because what what happens and I saw this with this is how people get better at widowmakers and it makes them more and more treacherous hmm. is you as you get more and more trained and used to to struggling through those just crazy balls to the wall sets mm-hmm. 
you learn how to like get more reps simply by pausing more. Mm. Yeah. And rest between reps. Of course. Yeah. That's how like you see these, some of these people doing like widow makers, like Chris Basarkic. Remember him? He's passed away now. No, I he didn't. He was know mental on the boards for a while. Okay. Um, ben Bruno, who's now kind of a famous trainer out in Hollywood. Okay. He used to do the intense set of the month. Oh. And he would do crazy sets that just lasted forever. And because he would just like get some reps and go almost to failure, and then he'd just wait. Yeah. He'd wait till he recovered. Get great recovery, and the sets would just go on forever. Yeah. Oh like, God. Yeah. Like keep doing this, right? And you've do- you've done this too. I've seen this when you were first doing i think muscle rounds you were pausing between things yeah yeah so you just and that's that's hard training well that doesn't if you allow that to happen then what you do is you go it's not no it's no longer even a regular set so Mm. taking a set to failure you know when you first start doing that versus a year later Mm -hmm. can be a different phenomenon it's a totally different stress yeah if you're letting yourself pause between those reps okay absolutely so then the volume that you can handle goes down if you're just counting sets as the way you count volume. Mm, okay. So if, if you take a set to failure and you do, you know, let's say do 10 straight sets, sorry, 10 straight reps and you, continuously until you hit zero reps reserve or you actually fail versus taking that weight like people would do with the Widowmaker. Maybe you get seven mm-hmm. and you pause and then you get two or three more, two more, let's say, and you pause, and then you get two more, mm-hmm. and you pause, and then you get a single, and then you pause, and then you get another single, and you pause. Now you've just come close to failure like four times. Yeah. You've gotten 13 more reps. So it's still one set, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But what it does to your recovery abilities and how that would then influence, imagine then, we're talking about this dose response, imagine what happened if you did your sets continuously like that, Mm. And you looked at what one set gives you, two sets, three, four, five, six, seven. Eventually, you'd have some optimal adaptation doing continuous reps yeah. versus doing all your sets like Widowmakers like that. Yeah. Totally different dose response. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. And the thing that um, I, mean, I always talked about is that that's just so taxing on your nervous system. That will just destroy you nervous system-wise. Whereas you can, I think you can get away with more more volume mm-hmm. in terms of the muscle training, training the muscle. If you take the, keep those reps continuous and Mm -hmm. then just go to failure or zero reps in reserve. Yeah. Me recovering from a muscle round is cake compared to recovering from a widow maker. Yes, absolutely. Or even a, even a, um, a a rest rest pause. pause. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a different, different thing. It's a different thing. I like, Mm -hmm. I like the, the, the widow maker the best personally you know that's where you're really yeah. putting your, oh, yeah, all your guts out there and you know right. you're not limited by i feel like with a muscle round it's like i'm limited by my stupid muscle that quit on me <laughs> you know what i mean that that's what you want i yeah, know that's kind of what you yeah i get it i get it i get it yeah. and i'm like i didn't get to like put my heart and guts into it my stupid freaking muscle stopped working and i know right. that's what you want because you want to save that central nervous system you basically be able to come back and do it again faster because I do recover from them so much better, so much more easily mm-hmm. with that kind of training. Good. That's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It's a so great, you trick. can imagine then like, imagine like you, you have someone who can do like, and you adjust the weight. So they get sets of 10 continuous reps until they, each, each set, the last exactly 10 reps. So they can maybe do five of those. Yeah. Whereas if in terms of what they can recover from, they could only do like maybe three sets 
where they allow themselves breaks and do it sort of Widowmaker style. Yeah. So those three sets with the same loads might be, you know, 13 or 14 reps. So let's say they get like 40 reps mm-hmm. on those three sets. Whereas if they did five sets with continuous reps, they would have 50 reps. Mm. So it's 50 versus 40. Mm-hmm. And that means greater stimulus in a certain way, at least. Right. It's hard to compare because you've got more reps that are close to failure and the activation pattern difference. But that's the idea behind fortitude training is to take advantage of there is a dose response mm. and do as many of those continuous rep sets because the relative inroads per unit volume of training on the muscle is less mm. when you don't close come close so close to failure repeatedly right in doing things widowmaker style yeah which makes sense so yeah but anyway so there's so anyway back to like i think we started on this like it's impossible to um replace like volume with intensity volume with intensity and i'm like that's just so that's now you understand like that's why it's such an asinine statement to say something's impossible it can never happen it's exact same thing in black and white thinking is saying we proved this it can never be any exceptions to this rule yeah which science, you know, shows that when you do inferential statistics, you may find no differences in the means, statistically speaking. But when you look at the individuals, that's where the that's where the the genius is of finding information. In my mind, a lot of times in the science is so. Are there individuals who respond to this particular strategy? Yeah. And there are there some that don't. Well, good. We'll, we'll look at the ones, or even look at studies. Are there studies that show that people respond from intra-workout nutrition? Yes. Are there some that show it? They don't. Yes. So some people will and some people won't. Can we figure out from how those studies were set up what differed that might explain that? If not, it could just be that there's different individual differences. And for whatever reason, that some we can't quite glean from the study descriptions itself, yeah. they had more people who tended to respond, so they found a significant difference. Okay, yeah. You'll find this all the time. You look across studies and the rate of muscle growth and everything. It's all over the place. Some studies show good muscle growth. Some studies show shitty muscle growth. Some of that's a function of the subjects they happen to have had there. Okay. So, do, you, do you have time yeah. to run through some listener questions here? Yeah, we can do a few. All right. We got a bunch of them, so if we need to move quicker on them, uh, if, the, if it's possible, uh, we can right. we can hammer through them. If not, we'll just take a few. Um, I'm going to start with the first one I see here, which says, um, I've been following heavy duty with all the trimmings, forced reps, negatives, and statics. I like the way he worded that. Um, all done to true muscular failure, uh, but muscles like back, legs, and to some extent, chest and shoulders are not getting sore at all. I'm wondering if after the years of training, uh, that this is uh, all one full, wait, excuse me, that this one set to failure is still not enough. My question is, um, more advanced you are, would you need some more volume, uh, two to three sets per body part? Uh, I'm not thinking of a lot more volume. So I was listening to that. I was trying to find the thread too, so that I can find. I have such a hard time finding the questions. Um, are we in the group for the questions you're reading there, Scott? They or would be on the post? original post at the Advices Radio Facebook page, not the yeah, group. On. The the main question to ask. There we go. And there's the comments. Is is there progress occurring? 
And I don't know if he's still making progress. Mm. I'm looking at. Come on, hold still there. All the trimmings, muscle back, are not getting sore at all. I'm wondering after years of training, once it. So he's. The question is, I don't. Who knows? The 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 end result is not soreness. The end result is progress. Okay. Yeah. So if his loads are going up in the gym and is he's eating enough to support growth, then we probably is getting some progress. His weight's going up. And we've talked about that, that before. That, Volume or, yeah. or soreness. Soreness is not the necessarily, and that kind of confuses me because I was raised to believe that if you had a sore muscle, you trained it well. And if you had a sore muscle, you trained it even better. If the muscle's not sore, you didn't work it out hard enough. Mm. John Meadows doesn't get sore very often. He's he's a pretty big guy. There's huge variability in that. Yeah. Um, like we talked about in the last time. So you grow without getting sore and you can grow while you're getting sore. Okay. And I, I would love, I would love to see someone just, you just got to throw that in as a, an extra measurement during the course of a training study. Mm. It could be done like even like along, like literally while people are warming up, just get a muscle soreness rating during their first warm up set. Okay. Standardized warm ups they come into the lab, but who knows if he's not getting sore, if he's not getting sore and he's eating, he's eating enough to grow and he's not getting stronger and the body comp estimates, whatever he's doing with the mirror don't show muscle growth, yeah. then probably more, he needs to do more. Okay. As long, but, but it's just so many unknowns there. He's literally looking just at soreness, like you said, and that's, that's overly simplistic. Okay. Um, do that. Right. But, more volume, actually the research suggests, at least as far as strength goes, that more volume is needed in more advanced individuals. Mm. But bodybuilders don't always find that. It kind of depends on how old you are to some degree, too, how long you've been training, because age can start to interact with training experience. Okay. So that the more, tra the more trained you get, the harder you can train, the stronger you get, the less you do, which happened to Dorian Yates. It's kind of a quintessential example of that. And then the older you get, if you're still using the same loads, you may not be able to recover as well just because age is getting you. Okay. Um, okay. So I would probably add more volume, but it's a function of what can you recover from. And just to dig into this, like all the trimmings. So like he's probably doing like, you know, it does a straight set. Then he does four straps and negatives all the way. And then he holds it as long as he can, something like that. So you know, so the, all the sets are like one set like that. That probably that might not be enough. Okay. Um, but the main thing is if he's getting stronger. So you could ask himself the question: Would he get stronger? He might may have a sense of this. If he cut those trimmings off, mm. would that mean he could come in and gain some strength? Okay. And if he's getting stronger, if he starts now going from he's been doing two fifty on an incline press for eons, and now he can go to two seventy five and eventually three hundred over the next few months by not doing those things. And yeah. yes, may vary depending on the muscle group too. Okay. That's what happens. All right. I'll jump to the next one here. This is from our YouTube page. A uh, guy who's been listening to a bunch of our shows. Um, his name is Vulcan Cezanne. I think you would say his name. Um, he says, uh, I have something in mind. Let's see here. Um, what is the relationship between chronic overtraining, under eating, and low testosterone and low DHEA? Uh, and then he asks, are there natural ways to, to boost these sex hormones again? 
into their normal ranges if that is possible? Um, what should be adjusted workout and nutrition routine in order to come back from overtraining? So I guess, first of okay, all, Scott, so, can these hormones be affected by overtraining? Yes. Okay. In your traditional overtraining you know, model, testosterone levels will go down, cortisol levels go up. Yeah. This hasn't been really deeply studied in the context of resistance training, but definitely in endurance training it has. Okay. It's a little bit weird with resistance training. Um, but so that that's the testosterone to cortisol ratio is the thing that's used. It's even a better indicator. You've got two things that correlate with training status mm. there. So absolutely, dieting down will reduce testosterone in natural natural guys. Obviously, if you're using exogenous, you know, different story. But yeah, and then not eating enough is going to limit recovery. And the obvious question, uh, obvious answer there is like, uh, if you don't eat enough for a given training stimulus, then you're going to be more likely to overtrain truly mm. um, than if you're eating more. So the more more you eat, the more you can recover. Generally speaking. Isn't there a so, big part of DC training is like really getting the food in to support that? Yes. He, he wants, I think he, talk, he called it muscle burning furnace or something like that. So, I like yeah, the sound absolutely. of that. Food, food's all of it. Food's like, food's the missing ingredient that we're, if, if only like people, like people, I hate, hate when you just sort of overly generalize, but only if the general mindset now were that food is the missing ingredient for growth. As opposed to drugs, we'd have a be, we'd have a, a much more impressive community of bodybuilders. I think, hmm. to be honest, um, drugs will get you know can make up for so many will band aid so many errors in training and food, whereas food is just it kind of has to be there at some point in time. Yeah. You just need the energy and need the need the building materials. Yeah. So more so in order to come out of an overtraining status like that. De- you're gonna have to deload or just stop. If you're truly overtrained, you probably have to stop training. Mm. That's if you're like truly overtraining. Very few people truly overtrain, like really truly overtrain, where they're starting to lose performance. Yeah, I think I decline. I think I did uh, recently. I I yeah yeah, and and, and then it, it ended up being, you know, I ended up getting hurt in my shoulder. But I think I was at a point where I was because I was just pushing to. Failure, 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 everything, and progressing, mm-hmm. progressing, progressing. And when I pulled back, I think it was too late. Like I needed to really pull back, like stop training, because I think I had done mm-hmm. it for too long, and I wasn't getting stronger yeah. for a long time. And eventually, I was declining, and then I just everything went downhill. I didn't want. To, I didn't even want to train. I had anxiety about training. It really stopped becoming fun. It lasted for two or three weeks, and I was trying to. It and it really, man, it was just like it got out of my control. So. I'm going to work mm-hmm. on it. I do think it is possible, but yeah, I guess I've heard that said that it's like the amount of people that, that, that it's probably not a, overtraining is something that happens over a long period. It's not something you do in one workout. That's, I think the thing that I think is the big misconception I've heard people have of overtraining. I mean, you can like in some of the studies and I can't remember the exact ways to do it, but the general approach can be like to try to, let's just like double training volume for like two weeks okay. and people already doing as much volume as they can ah. and just blast them out of the water. So you can create an overtraining type of scenario defined by a loss in performance Yeah, very acutely. No one would ever do that or try that unless you just decide like all of a sudden you're just going to try to train like Ronnie. Yeah. You know, 
you know, like last like 10 days and you're then you're fucked yeah but yeah according to that simple definition of a loss in performance a declining performance you were overtrained so what a lot of people really think of when they say overtraining is literally they're just doing too much to optimize the growth so that it's excessive mm. training yeah it could be growing better if they did less which i think may be true for lots of people yeah um Training to failure, per se, is not necessarily the issue. It's the volume that you use when training to failure or not to failure. Hmm. So, again, the inverted U, like you, 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 more and more sets eventually creates your optimal adaptation, all other things being equal, and then you start doing too much, and eventually you don't have any adaptation, and if you go beyond that, then you have a negative adaptation. You regress, you lose performance, and that's what over, where overtraining would, would occur. Okay. So... What else did he say? So ways to get beyond, eat more, yeah. start eating, so come off your diet, um, train less, do a deload, pretty simple. Yeah, I think he knows the answer to these questions. He's just wanting us to tell him what I think, he yeah. knows. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I have a feeling. if He's, he's yeah. watching Muscle Minds. He, he already knows. Yeah. But it was a good topic. He knew it was a good topic for you, too. I think that's probably part of what it is. It fits in well with this. Yeah, so. it does. It does. I've got a couple that don't fit in well. We're going to go into like a, a drug direction here for a minute. Um, I think with drug direction, we'll see here. Um, it says, I'll just, I'll just cut to the point, guys. This is from uh, George. He says, uh, thank you, Dr. Scott. I messaged you on IG about my gyno removal and, uh, and using AIs still. I cut, uh, kept decreasing my letro until eventually I started doing 12 to 15 milligrams of aromacin uh, with 500 to 525 test dosed. I feel great and blood work has never looked so good and gyno isn't coming back um, even though the surgeon said I should stay on AIs. Um, is this a question or is he just telling us this stuff? Let's see, he's got another post mm -hmm. here. Uh, my total test went from, went to 3K, da, 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 da. I kind of needed confirmation to try without, oh, I guess this isn't a question. I think he's just uh, saying thanks. He's just pro providing me feedback. I think so, yes. Maybe, maybe I didn't, yeah. Sometimes I have messages to go to that new general folder. Oh, on I get lost on those too, man. They don't show up like, yeah, they don't show up as new messages. You have a whole shitload of them there. So he might have gotten lost in that. All right. I'm going to bring us back, back to topic. Okay. How about this? Um, Tony asks, uh, how about mixing it up heavy for a few and then uh, volume when you hit a plateau? For a few minutes. Like workouts? Minutes. Well, I, no, I don't <laughs> I don't know. Like... <laughs> Well, I mean, fortitude training is like there's there's three set types, and they go there's loading sets, the muscle rounds, and the pump sets, and those are heavy, sort of more moderate and lighter loads. Okay. So, like for a few, you can do like you do it all in one workout too. That's what he means. A few sets, like to do a few heavy sets, like do pyramids or do like you know some five to tens, ten to fifteens, and fifteen to twenty. You can absolutely. I think John Meadows kind of does that. You know, he because he does, yeah, yeah, he does all sorts of stuff. He's I've heard him say that that you know why why just stimulate one muscle fiber? You know, we hear like the fast twitch. The, mm. you, you train in the eight to tens to do this, and then you train in the. He was like, just train it all. You know, 
They'll train higher reps to warm the muscle up Mm -hmm. and then go to his meat and potatoes movements that are heavier, slightly less reps. And then he'll go even higher reps after that. Flush Mm -hmm. all the blood in. I mean, I I suggest people because I know I know fortitude training, obviously. I know DC training did that for a long time. And I know the basics of John's programs all differ to some degree. But I know the basics of mountain dog training because I co-wrote the book with him, The Brutality of Mountain Dog Training. So that's what I suggest people do if if like pick pick a work a system that works and keep doing it until you're just or you're sick of it yeah generally like squeak all the squeeze all the progress out of it you can but those are three great programs to rotate through okay so so like mountain dog training will be tend to be higher reps higher volume than DC training yeah so it'll be pre- prepare you pretty well and this is what like you go all the way back to like Matt Biev's like standard linear progression model where they would do a um, hypertrophy. It's called hypertrophy strength and power with the three phases. Yeah. It's just like basic, like this is the roots of periodization in the Eastern Bloc. And hypertrophy, like, so the context for this would be a lot of times be athletes who had a previous season where they probably were on lots of gear and they took time off, like didn't do anything, kind of Ronnie Coleman style, it took a long break. And they would start them training back the way Arnold would and probably get them back on the anabolics. In this case, it wasn't explicitly said, but this is probably what's going on to some degree, I think, at least for some athletes. And these are strength and power athletes, so like track and field, those sorts of things. And they would literally, they call the first phase hypertrophy where they do higher volume. They just literally need to get in shape. Yeah. So they start training with higher volume. And when they're putting the food back in and they're training again and they're going to regrow muscle, it's going to be create hypertrophy. Yeah, yeah. And then when they start, then they start doing strength, which is going to be, you know, higher, higher loads, lower reps. So not doing sets, high rep sets, starting to like focus in on the strength. And then power would be when they're doing like really low reps. So if it's an Olympic weightlifter, for Mm. instance. Those are very powerful movements where they only do like singles and doubles and triples. So that's kind of wow. where that notion kind of comes from. Okay. So that's how like that's like a standard way to do things, and that's that's kind of what he's what he's talking about. That's a standard model of periodization, and those phases all fit well with one another. First, you get the muscle mass, you get yourself in shape, and then your recovery is really good. In fact, your fitness is really good. So when you go from that, you know, lots of reps, lots of sets, short rest intervals. To trying to strain for, with heavier loads and strength with just to get stronger per se, like the six to ten range, something like that. Yeah, your recovery is really good because now you're doing like the sets aren't that. It's not like you're just catching your wind the whole time because you're already in shape and you've regained some muscle mass. Mm. So now you can use the you can employ that muscle mass with the heavier loads and train your nervous system to lift heavier. Okay, and then eventually you go to the power if you're a, a power based athlete. Okay, but those things all fit well. So ba- alternating between heavier and lighter fits well for for I think bodybuilders and you can put them all in one week like I did a fortitude training all in one workout or go for, between different programs mm. so different training systems that are more volume based versus DC which is more load based and progressive overload based and fortitude training is kind of somewhere in the middle okay. so I've got both high rep sets and, and heavier sets like DC yeah so Ooh. yes here's a good one this question. Yeah. Um, would love to hear your insight into top sets slash back off sets in terms of tapping into higher threads whole uh, higher threads hold muscle units uh 
larger amounts of muscle fibers. I'm not sure what he means by that last part. Uh, yeah, I know what I know what he means. So what, what does he mean? Um, so there's a it's Henneman size principle. There's a progressively re, progressive recruitment of motor units as loads get heavier, okay. or as a set goes from the first the beginning to its end, where you first activate or bring in the low threshold motor units because they're used when there's a low force or fatigue demand. And then as things get heavier or fatigue gets greater, the higher threshold, that's what he maybe mis mistyped or got misspelled there somehow. Or I misread. Motor units get called upon. Yeah. It could be. Um, I'm not, I don't see it there. I'm not looking on YouTube. So, okay. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure what he's like. Both of those, at the at the loads that people are using for that, like a six to ten, and maybe like a twelve to fifteen. Yeah. If you're taking those sets to failure, you're going to hit the high thresholds in both both oh. sets. Okay. Without a doubt, yeah. So, um, a lot of people like to go heavy first, and then lighter thereafter. Uh huh. Um, because if you go the other, if you're going to failure, and like those are all like work sets, you know, bury yourself with both of them, because doing the there seems to be a less effect, lesser effect on the heavier set um, if you do it first versus doing after what we consider the back offset. Mm. That's why you call it a back offset. You've gone up to the heaviest load you're going to do, and then you back off the weight, and then you do like the 12 to 15 with with a little bit less than what you did for. This is what Dante would do in DC training. The people don't always remember this because DC said like if. If you can't recover from it, don't do it. But usually in DC training for for legs, for quads, and I think you just called it quads. You do like say so you're squatting. You would do like a six to ten, and then a twelve to, or ten to twelve probably, and then you do a widowmaker. So it'd be three sets: hmm. heavy set, a back off set, and a widowmaker. Not everyone could recover from that. So so somewhere people started just wanting to do one set and then a um, a widowmaker. But the basic DC training is a heavy set and a back offset, which is exactly what he's talking about there. Mm. That's so, that's what I've been training. doing. Yeah, is the heavier yeah. and then the back off. I like that a lot. Yeah, because if you go like, you might get a little more on the back off if you do it first versus the heavy. Mm. But in terms of like the total, if you if you calculate, this is just actually I did this at one point in time years ago. But if you calculate the the for a lot of people, many people, if you calculate the total work performed weight times reps just use that as a surrogate you're going to get more if you do the heavy set and the light set mm. and the light set thereafter okay because the fatigue incurred in the he- in the lighter set will bring down the load on the heavier set right right um, that's what i found yeah just yeah, like real so world experience just, yeah and and also like driving strength gains um, what's probably more important there is, is the load that you carry. Cause a lot of that is at those lighter loads is neurological. Sorry. Those heavier loads is neurological. Yeah. So if you can like feel four Oh five as opposed to three sixty five, yeah. when you're doing your heavy set, because you're not fatigued previously, then that has a more of that's, that's a heavier load. Your no- nervous system knows this. That's probably better in evoking that those neurological adaptations, just in my in my mind at least, mm. that bring about strength gain. So you're handling the heavier stuff, um, and also a lot of for a lot of people, like powerlifters will do this. I've done this before. Like if you're getting ready for something, having done a heavier load first makes the lighter load feel even lighter. Mm. 
So I've even gone up before the heavy load. Let's say I'm going to I'm going to use 405. I might try like 455. Yeah. Just do like a single. With I mean I might be able to do 455 for four or five. Yeah. But just do a single, just to feel it. So when you go back down to 405, it feels light. Yeah, I've done that. I've done, I feel like there's a lot to be said about I. I term it as keying up my central nervous system. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It, I think it does. It's, it, it's just a, there's a, probably a short term memory there. There's a probably mm-hmm. nervous system learning effect that will happen. Um, I mean, if you, if you time things right, it could even have a post activation potentiation effect on the skeletal muscle. Wait. So a heavier contraction like that. It's called post-activation potentiation. Okay. After you've activated a muscle, there can be a potentiation, the force that it produces. That's a long shot, but it's, you know, it's something that, that um, uh, like, strength and power athletes would try to employ. So okay. you do, like, you, like, you see sometimes people, like, um, before they're going to squat, they sometimes they just do this instinctively, I think, but they'll, like, kind of, like, do jumps, like, almost like plyos without boxes. Yeah, yeah. Jump up and down. Yeah. I've done that, that instinctively. Nobody yeah. told me to do that. You're a natural athlete. <laughs> you, baby. Yeah, I'm the opposite um, of that. I'm laugh- I know I'm not. I'm just laughing. But, yeah. So, but that, but that will. So that's that. That's a that's a high intensity activation, and something in doing so will increase the resultant force in the muscle. Huh. And it's the best. Like so, there's there's actin and myosin, and there's um. Uh, there's something called myosin light chain that can become phosphorylated, and that will affect the affinity of the myosin for the actin in the cross bridge cycle. Okay. So there may be something going on there with that's the best mechanism I've been able to kind of dig up, whereby having done that contraction, yeah, changes the way the actin and myosin interacts. If you, it'll last. It's only a transient effect, but you do some of those, and then you go and you do the actual lift, and you get more force out hmm. of it. So that could be happening too. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, like count on that. But there's definitely something about doing that heavier set just to feel the weight, yeah, and then come back down. So for pe- this would be a good, like this is a good kind of tip. Do it safely, of course. But if you're someone who on those big lifts, like that first rep, is it a maker or breaker for the set? Mm. Like sometimes you like you pull for the like the first rep and you like it just comes right up. You're like you're in your groove, like it was dead on. Mm-hmm. And then the set just is like it's just gangbusters from then then on. Like you're just going game on, baby. We're gonna just rock this set. Yeah. As opposed to you unrack the weight, let's say, and you're like, oh shit, I'm I don't know about crushed. this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, right. Right. So having done that heavier load, even just a, like ten percent heavier. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a lot. It shouldn't be like a one rep max. It'd be something that you can do. We're talking about when the heavy set's going to be like a six to ten, maybe an eight to ten. Yeah. You would go add like five or ten percent to that. So it's heavier. Yeah. Just to feel the weight. Yeah. Almost, it's almost like a warm up, but with a heavier weight. Hmm. So then the actual heavy set is a back off from that load wise. Yeah. That that helps make that first rep feel really easy. Yeah. Yeah gets you past like that little that 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 barrier of like oh fuck like this is going to crush me right so I mean, another way to do that is to do do a like instead of like instead it's like let's say your work work load is work work weight is going to be 405 mm-hmm. you know and you normally go 135 to 225 315 365 405 you might do 365 and then do like a 385 hmm just in between there, just so you get incrementally, so you don't even feel that there's no difference. Hmm. 
really. Mm. So that gets you closer. But going above that and then coming back down, if, as long as that as long as that rep doesn't throw you completely off, like like you chose the wrong way and you're like, oh fuck, yeah, that makes a big difference. And you feel that too when you do the drop when you do the back offset, right? You do your heavier set and you go to the back offset. It's I was just thinking deal. that yeah, for like the first four reps, I'm like, oh, this is easy. And then after that first right. four reps, then I die, you know, <laughs> then it gets yeah, real yeah. hard. Well, that's supposed to get tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you don't have that like, oh, God, like, in fact, it's the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Like, it feels relatively lighter than if you probably had done that first. Yeah, I think we've all had that so, experience where we've gone to lift that first heavy set and it just buries us. It's just it feels it feels like, oh, shit, this is a lot heavier than I expected kind of feeling. Yeah, I know that if I feel that way, I wasn't ready. And that's the. We talked before about warming up. I I take and I know I take a really long time to warm up, but that's because mm-hmm. when I warm up, I want to be a hundred percent. And some of that might have been I never really I don't really go up above the weight I want to use, but I've been known if it's say like a dumbbell row to use the actual dumbbell I'm in a row with and just do one, you know, and, yeah. f- and feel it. Then I'll take a minute, you know, I'll be like, okay, yeah, I'm ready for that, but I'm going to take one minute now and then I'll do the set. And it's interesting too, like you can almost trick yourself in the same way by doing that because if your warm-ups are getting incrementally heavier mm-hmm. this is weird the way this works but i've noticed this for years now and then you do like that single mm-hmm. with the actual work weight it's almost as if your brain is anticipating that the next weight's going to be heavier <laughs> yeah yeah than it is but you, but it's not it's the same one you just did yeah yeah huh i never thought of so that it does. It feels it all like when you actually do that first rep on the real set. Yeah. It feels lighter than that single single did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's because you did the single. If you hadn't done the single, it would have felt the way it did when he when he actually did the work set. Yeah. 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 yeah like when you actually did the single at the beginning of your work set. So there's something there about that. Like just like the, the, you're sort of tricking the nervous system. Maybe it's post activation potentiation hmm. or who knows. But. There's something to say for that, for, for training heavy and pushing hard. Yeah. You won't see, like, to harken back and can maybe tie up some of the things we're talking about, you're not going to have to deploy that when you're a beginner in your first four or five months of training, probably. No, no, nor would you know how. Right. You know? Yeah, wouldn't occur to you. Yeah. yeah. You're not pushing that hard. Like, you're not getting bone to bone crushing weights, at least for you, right. relatively speaking. Yeah. All right. So. This is good. You cleared up some things for me, Scott. Good. I'm glad. Glad. Now this was last time we got a little. I got a little, little too far out there. So this, this time I'm glad I. Got I uh, I rewatched it though the last episode and it made a lot more sense to me, uh, sitting back and not being like the guy who was like running the boards and all that, and oh, I got to just be right. a. I got to be a participant. You know what I mean? And and watch. Mm-hmm. You know, it it did. And we got some good feedback on that too, guys. Of course, anybody who's watching this. Uh, the recorded version on YouTube, we appreciate you. Uh, anybody who uh, who does enjoy this, do us a favor, hit the like button. I should mention that at the beginning of the right. show. You know that, Scott? I should say, hey, smash that like button. Subscribe. Yeah. Subscribe. I, that's the thing. Everyone does that, you know. They yeah. beg for that shit. And you should. you got to remind people because if you don't, then they're like, yeah, you know, I don't even think about right. it. But it does help we'll us out. The next one. What's yeah. up? You want to catch the next one yeah yeah well and also too it helps us out because it helps to boost us in the algorithm helps more people to find our stuff which uh you know we want to try to get this content out there and and uh get it seen by as many people whether and plus you, you got 
come up with some way to pay me my exorbitant salary for this podcast. Too. Exactly. And I want yeah. more of the uh, the um, the Weeder disciples to click on our videos and see yeah. and learn absolutely learn the truth. I want to know literally what things I may have misremembered and don't know about like what really went down because I just didn't pay so much attention. I'll tell you one thing with with Mentor is that I remember reading like long ago, maybe in, in one of the muscle magazines, that Mike Mentor derived his logic for training. This is when I was first sort of looking into, you know, becoming what I becoming exercise science trained. He derived it all from just logical principles of philosophy. Hmm. Okay. And he didn't really, yeah, that's kind of how like some of the things I read early on and maybe someone who is more connected with that can answer that. But it was as if he, he didn't like, he didn't take in the trenches experience and results. Rather, he just created a theoretical model based on what he expected would logically happen in a very sort hmm. of um, disconnected way. Hmm. That 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 didn't really reflect things that I knew he was seeing in the gym. We would have been seeing, but it's like he just went so far into sort of the yeah. the lofty clouds of Ayn Rand and her philosophy and various other things that he never sort of connected with what you know how this plays out in the real world in a way. Hmm. And that sort of was like I was like, well, I mean, I, I get you where you're coming from, but like, how does the where's the rubber meet the road here when it comes to this stuff? Yeah. So there's a lot to what he does, without a doubt. That was one of the things that I just remember thinking. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna subscribe to this too much. I like some of the ideas, and I, some of it definitely plays out in my mind. But yeah. like, you gotta, you gotta connect all the dots for it to, to, to sell me on it. I guess, which I didn't see him doing, but he may have otherwise. So that's why I like to hear from other people. I see too. The way I see his training is like, you know, if we look back at the, like the early automobiles, they're nothing compared to you know a 2020 car. And mm -hmm. I see it as kind of like it, because it it was what it was. It was part of history, and uh, yeah, you know the suspension on a Model T was not that good. You know, there's a lot of things about the yeah. Model T that were not. You could take a nice car from the '60s, even like a really nice hot rod. There's going to be some things that are not comfortable about that car. It's not going to hold the road with like the computerized stuff they have. Go the brakes, everything. It's not going to be mm. nearly as good as the cars of today, but it it served a purpose at the time, and it led us to where we are. Yeah, but there's truth to that. And then, then of course, like I mean, Dorian Yates was training at the end of the '90s. Okay, got a pretty solid training program. I don't know how much, like that worked great for him. I've got a 1999 Ford F350 with the 7.3 lead power stroke. Yeah. And that's still considered one of the best diesel engines of all time. Yeah. To this day, like the most reliable. I don't know. We'll have to see how the newer ones sort of pan out reliability-wise. But people don't scoff at that engine. Like I, I, people recognize it when I pull up a gas station. It's like, oh, that's seven point three. They know from the body style of the truck too. But yeah, I get comments on that all the time. Well, I might as well be driving like a you know Lamborghini or something for some people. <laughs> like, I got I got the legendary engine. Do like, you really? It's a big deal. Oh that's yeah, cool. it's like. Yeah. So, and that was, it's funny because part of it, like people have to do like various, various modifications to the newer engines because the engines had to be changed because of mission standards. Oh yeah. Right. So right. that was part of it. You know, why I think why it is able to do what it does, but 
So that was, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. So there's some, Metro's got a lot of good stuff. The thing is, it's like hard to like put him in a, put him in a box because he changed, I think, over the years. And that's, yeah. that's what's still confusing to me is like, when did he, you know, how, how wide did, was he spread in terms of what he suggested yeah. from start to finish? And I want to find he out evolved. too, how much of it was his ideas and how much of it was Arthur Jones. Because mm-hmm. I know that Art, yeah. he, Art, he was a big influence on Munster, you know. And there's also heavy duty, is I think what Mike called it, but HIT is what people say generally, yeah, as a generic category. And heavy duty was this one iteration of his specific philosophy, yeah, at one point in time. Yeah, so, yeah. I found a Mike Menser T-shirt. I uh, I asked oh, I asked for it for my birthday, so maybe I'll be wearing that on our next episode. We'll see. Can you? Can you grow out a Mike Manser mustache for the movie? I'm uh, not allowed to. I've been told. Uh, oh. I've been told no on that. I did do a like a. I did do a filter with the must. You know, a phone on my phone, a filter right. with the mustache. Right. It was a good yeah. look, but uh, some people don't appreciate it. So no porn stash for you, huh? No, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, bummer. All right, guys. That would be the really way to put that shirt on and get the stash going. Then I'd be impressed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That guy's going all in, man. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's a 2X, which is about my size. If I can get to the point where it doesn't fit anymore, then I will be impressed. And that will be the truth, whether you know high intensity works or not. How about that? That will prove it. And then you'll then you grow the mustache out just to commemorate that that extraordinary life success that Absolutely. you've outgrown the 2X. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, cool. Thank you, Scott. You said it right here. Don't clip it out. It's in the podcast. <laughs> Move that. I promise. Well, I appreciate you, Scott. You know, I've learned so much from you over the last few years, more than I initially realized I would have, but your ideas have, um, they've really influenced me a lot in my own training. So it's been important to me and I'm glad that we can do this show. I think the show has become, honestly, it's become more important over the years. I, I really think it has. And I think that what we're doing is good stuff. I hope that, you know, I, I, I joke a little bit about the Menser stuff and everything, but I am interested in him, but I, you know, I, I, I um, I do think that that what we're spreading here is good information that gets people thinking at least. They don't have to change what they're doing, but at least as long as they think about it, you know? I think there are people who want to be um, sort of inspired and and brought into a, a more of a thinking man's bodybuilder perspective on things. Some people don't want to think, they just want to tell me what tell me what to do. I don't I don't care why. I don't I don't want to know, but the people who are inclined to think about things more and try to create their own training strategies. I think they dig this. So I'm happy to, to provide nourishment for those minds. All right, guys, yeah. for another episode of muscle minds with Dr. Scott Stevenson, I'm Scott McNally. Check out uh, fortitudetraining.net. go to byobbcoach.com. Check out uh, truenutrition.com. You can pick up some J flex, keep your joints uh, healthy and you can keep doing uh, high intensity training. Guys, we'll see you soon. There you go. Adios.